section six of a treatise concerning the principles of human knowledge by george barclay this librivox recording is in the public domain of the principles of human knowledge continued one hundred and six caution as to the use of analogies but we should proceed warily in such things for we are apt to lay too great stress on analogies and to the prejudice of truth humour that eagerness of the mind whereby it is carried to extend its knowledge into general theorems for example in the business of gravitation or mutual attraction because it appears in many instances some are straightway for pronouncing it universal and that to attract and be attracted by every other body is an essential quality inherent in all bodies whatsoever whereas it is evident the fixed stars have no such tendency towards each other and so far is that gravitation from being essential to bodies that in some instances a quite contrary principle seems to show itself as in the perpendicular growth of plants and the elasticity of the air there is nothing necessary or essential in the case but it depends entirely on the will of the governing spirit who causes certain bodies to cleave together or tend towards each other according to various laws whilst he keeps others at a fixed distance and to some he gives a quite contrary tendency to fly asunder just as he sees convenient 107 after what has been premised i think we may lay down the following conclusions first it is plain philosophers amuse themselves in vain when they inquire for any natural efficient cause distinct from a mind or spirit secondly considering the whole creation is the workmanship of a wise and good agent it should seem to become philosophers to employ their thoughts contrary to what some hold about the final causes of things and i confess i see no reason why pointing out the various ends to which natural things are adapted and for which they were originally with unspeakable wisdom contrived should not be thought one good way of accounting for them and altogether worthy a philosopher thirdly from what has been premised no reason can be drawn why the history of nature should not still be studied and observations and experiments made which that they are of use to mankind and enable us to draw any general conclusions is not the result of any immutable habitudes or relations between things themselves but only of god's goodness and kindness to men in the administration of the world see section thirty and thirty one fourthly by a diligent observation of the phenomena within our view we may discover the general laws of nature and from them deduce the other phenomena i do not say demonstrate for all deductions of that kind depend on a supposition that the author of nature always operates uniformly and in a constant observance of those rules we take for principles which we cannot evidently know one hundred and eight three analogies those men who frame general rules from the phenomena and afterwards derive the phenomena from those rules seem to consider signs rather than causes a man may well understand natural signs without knowing their analogy or being able to say by what rule a thing is so or so and as it is very possible to write improperly through too strict an observance of general grammar rules so in arguing from general laws of nature it is not impossible we may extend the analogy too far and by that means run into mistakes 109 as in reading other books a wise man will choose to fix his thoughts on the sense and apply it to use rather than lay them out in grammatical remarks on the language so in perusing the volume of nature it seems beneath the dignity of the mind to affect an exactness in reducing each particular phenomenon to general rules or showing how it follows from them we should propose to ourselves nobler views namely to recreate and exalt the mind with a prospect of the beauty order extent and variety of natural things 
hence by proper inferences to enlarge our notions of the grandeur wisdom and beneficence of the creator and lastly to make the several parts of the creation so far as in us lies subservient to the ends they were designed for god's glory and the sustentation and comfort of ourselves and fellow creatures 110 the best key for the aforesaid analogy or natural science will be easily acknowledged to be a certain celebrated treatise of mechanics in the entrance of which justly admired treatise time space and motion are distinguished into absolute and relative true and apparent mathematical and vulgar which distinction as it is at large explained by the author does suppose these quantities to have an existence without the mind and that they are ordinarily conceived with relation to sensible things to which nevertheless in their own nature they bear no relation at all 111 as for time as it is there taken in an absolute or abstracted sense for the duration or perseverance of the existence of things i have nothing more to add concerning it after what has been already said on that subject section ninety seven and ninety eight for the rest this celebrated author holds there is an absolute space which being unperceivable to sense remains in itself similar and immovable and relative space to be the measure thereof which being movable and defined by its situation in respect of sensible bodies is vulgarly taken for immovable space place he defines to be that part of space which is occupied by any body and according as the space is absolute or relative so also is the place absolute motion is said to be the translation of a body from absolute place to absolute place as relative motion is from one relative place to another and because the parts of absolute space do not fall under our senses instead of them we are obliged to use their sensible measures and so define both place and motion with respect to bodies which we regard as immovable but it is said in philosophical matters we must abstract from our senses since it may be that none of those bodies which seem to be quiescent are truly so and the same thing which is moved relatively may be really at rest as likewise one and the same body may be in relative rest and motion or even moved with contrary relative motions at the same time according as its place is variously defined all which ambiguity is to be found in the apparent motions but not at all in the true or absolute which should therefore be alone regarded in philosophy and the true as we are told are distinguished from apparent or relative motions by the following properties first in true or absolute motion all parts which preserve the same position with respect of the whole partake of the motions of the whole secondly the place being moved that which is placed therein is also moved so that a body moving in a place which is in motion doth participate the motion of its place thirdly true motion is never generated or changed otherwise than by force impressed on the body itself fourthly true motion is always changed by force impressed on the body moved fifthly in circular motion barely relative there is no centrifugal force which nevertheless in that which is true or absolute is proportional to the quantity of motion 112 motion whether real or apparent relative but notwithstanding what has been said i must confess it does not appear to me that there can be any motion other than relative so that to conceive motion there must be at least conceived two bodies whereof the distance or position in regard to each other is varied hence if there was one only body in being it could not possibly be moved this seems evident in that the idea i have of motion doth necessarily include relation 113 apparent motion denied but though in every motion it be necessary to conceive more bodies than one 
yet it may be that one only is moved namely that on which the force causing the change in the distance or situation of the bodies is impressed for however some may define relative motion so as to term that body moved which changes its distance from some other body whether the force or action causing that change were impressed on it or no yet as relative motion is that which is perceived by sense and regarded in the ordinary affairs of life it should seem that every man of common sense knows what it is as well as the best philosopher now i ask any one whether in his sense of motion as he walks along the streets the stones he passes over may be said to move because they change distance with his feet to me it appears that though motion includes a relation of one thing to another yet it is not necessary that each term of the relation be denominated from it as a man may think of somewhat which does not think so a body may be moved to or from another body which is not therefore itself in motion 114 as the place happens to be variously defined the motion which is related to it varies a man in a ship may be said to be quiescent with relation to the sides of the vessel and yet move with relation to the land or he may move eastward in respect of the one and westward in respect of the other in the common affairs of life men never go beyond the earth to define the place of any body and what is quiescent in respect of that is accounted absolutely to be so but philosophers who have a greater extent of thought and juster notions of the system of things discover even the earth itself to be moved in order therefore to fix their notions they seem to conceive the corporeal world as finite and the utmost unmoved walls or shell thereof to be the place whereby they estimate true motions if we sound our own conceptions i believe we may find all the absolute motion we can frame an idea of to be at bottom no other than relative motion thus defined for as has been already observed absolute motion exclusive of all external relation is incomprehensible and to this kind of relative motion all the above-mentioned properties causes and effects ascribed to absolute motion will if i mistake not be found to agree as to what is said of the centrifugal force that it does not at all belong to circular relative motion i do not see how this follows from the experiment which is brought to prove it see philosophiae naturalis principia mathematica in scoldef eight for the water in the vessel at the same time wherein it is said to have the greatest relative circular motion has i think no motion at all as is plain from the foregoing section 115 for to denominate a body moved it is requisite first that it change its distance or situation with regard to some other body and secondly that the force occasioning that change be applied to it if either of these be wanting i do not think that agreeably to the sense of mankind or the propriety of language a body can be said to be in motion i grant indeed that it is possible for us to think a body which we see change its distance from some other to be moved though it have no force applied to it in which sense there may be apparent motion but then it is because the force causing the change of distance is imagined by us to be applied or impressed on that body thought to move which indeed shows we are capable of mistaking a thing to be in motion which is not and that is all 116 any idea of pure space relative from what has been said it follows that the philosophic consideration of motion does not imply the being of an absolute space distinct from that which is perceived by sense and related bodies which that it cannot exist without the mind is clear upon the same principles that demonstrate the like of all other objects of sense and perhaps if we inquire narrowly we shall find we cannot even frame an idea of pure space exclusive of all body this i must confess seems impossible as being a most abstract idea 
when i excite a motion in some part of my body if it be free or without resistance i say there is space but if i find a resistance then i say there is body and in proportion as the resistance to motion is lesser or greater i say the space is more or less pure so that when i speak of pure or empty space it is not to be supposed that the word space stands for an idea distinct from or conceivable without body and motion though indeed we are apt to think every noun substantive stands for a distinct idea that may be separated from all others which has occasioned infinite mistakes when therefore supposing all the world to be annihilated besides my own body i say there still remains pure space thereby nothing else is meant but only that i conceive it possible for the limbs of my body to be moved on all sides without the least resistance but if that too were annihilated then there could be no motion and consequently no space some perhaps may think the sense of seeing doth furnish them with the idea of pure space but it is plain from what we have elsewhere shown that the ideas of space and distance are not obtained by that sense see the essay concerning vision 117 what is here laid down seems to put an end to all those disputes and difficulties that have sprung up amongst the learned concerning the nature of pure space but the chief advantage arising from it is that we are freed from that dangerous dilemma to which several who have employed their thoughts on that subject imagine themselves reduced to wit of thinking either that real space is god or else that there is something beside god which is eternal uncreated infinite indivisible immutable both which may justly be thought pernicious and absurd notions it is certain that not a few divines as well as philosophers of great note have from the difficulty they found in conceiving either limits or annihilation of space concluded it must be divine and some of late have set themselves particularly to show the incommunicable attributes of god agree to it which doctrine how unworthy soever it may seem of the divine nature yet i do not see how we can get clear of it so long as we adhere to the received opinions 118 the errors arising from the doctrines of abstraction and external material existences influence mathematical reasonings hitherto of natural philosophy we come now to make some inquiry concerning that other great branch of speculative knowledge to wit mathematics these how celebrated soever they may be for their clearness and certainty of demonstration which is hardly anywhere else to be found cannot nevertheless be supposed altogether free from mistakes if in their principles there lurks some secret error which is common to the professors of those sciences with the rest of mankind mathematicians though they deduce their theorems from a great height of evidence yet their first principles are limited by the consideration of quantity and they do not ascend into any inquiry concerning those transcendental maxims which influence all the particular sciences each part whereof mathematics not excepted does consequently participate of the errors involved in them that the principles laid down by mathematicians are true and their way of deduction from those principles clear and incontestable we do not deny but we hold there may be certain erroneous maxims of greater extent than the object of mathematics and for that reason not expressly mentioned though tacitly supposed throughout the whole progress of that science and that the ill effects of those secret unexamined errors are diffused through all the branches thereof to be plain we suspect the mathematicians are as well as other men concerned in the errors arising from the doctrine of abstract general ideas and the existence of objects without the mind 119 arithmetic has been thought to have for its object abstract ideas of number of which to understand the properties and mutual habitudes is supposed no mean part of speculative knowledge 
the opinion of the pure and intellectual nature of numbers in abstract has made them in esteem with those philosophers who seem to have affected an uncommon fineness and elevation of thought it has set a price on the most trifling numerical speculations which in practice are of no use but serve only for amusement and has therefore so far infected the minds of some that they have dreamed of mighty mysteries involved in numbers and attempted the explication of natural things by them but if we inquire into our own thoughts and consider what has been premised we may perhaps entertain a low opinion of those high flights and abstractions and look on all inquiries about numbers only as so many difficiles nugae so far as they are not subservient to practice and promote the benefit of life 120 unity in abstract we have before considered in section thirteen from which and what has been said in the introduction it plainly follows there is not any such idea but number being defined a collection of units we may conclude that if there be no such thing as unity or unit in abstract there are no ideas of number in abstract denoted by the numeral names and figures the theories therefore in arithmetic if they are abstracted from the names and figures as likewise from all use and practice as well as from the particular things numbered can be supposed to have nothing at all for their object hence we may see how entirely the science of numbers is subordinate to practice and how jejun and trifling it becomes when considered as a matter of mere speculation 121 however since there may be some who deluded by the specious show of discovering abstracted verities waste their time in arithmetical theorems and problems which have not any use it will not be amiss if we more fully consider and expose the vanity of that pretence and this will plainly appear by taking a view of arithmetic in its infancy and observing what it was that originally put men on the study of that science and to what scope they directed it it is natural to think that at first men for ease of memory and help of computation made use of counters or in writing of single strokes points or the like each whereof was made to signify an unit that is some one thing of whatever kind they had occasion to reckon afterwards they found out the more compendious ways of making one character stand in place of several strokes or points and lastly the notation of the arabians or indians came into use wherein by the repetition of a few characters or figures and varying the signification of each figure according to the place it obtains all numbers may be most aptly expressed which seems to have been done in imitation of language so that an exact analogy is observed betwixt the notation by figures and names the nine simple figures answering the nine first numeral names and places in the former corresponding to denominations in the latter and agreeably to those conditions of the simple and local value of figures were contrived methods of finding from the given figures or marks of the parts what figures and how placed are proper to denote the whole or vice versa and having found the sort figures the same rule or analogy being observed throughout it is easy to read them into words and so the number becomes perfectly known for then the number of any particular things is said to be known when we know the name of figures with their due arrangement that according to the standing analogy belong to them for these signs being known we can by the operations of arithmetic know the signs of any part of the particular sums signified by them and thus computing in signs because of the connection established betwixt them and the distinct multitudes of things whereof one is taken for an unit we may be able rightly to sum up divide and proportion the things themselves that we intend to number 122 in arithmetic therefore we regard not the things but the signs which nevertheless are not regarded for their own sake but because they direct us how to act with relation to things and dispose rightly of them 
now agreeably to what we have before observed of words in general section nineteen introduction it happens here likewise that abstract ideas are thought to be signified by numeral names or characters while they do not suggest ideas of particular things to our minds i shall not at present enter into a more particular dissertation on this subject but only observe that it is evident from what has been said those things which pass for abstract truths and theorems concerning numbers are in reality conversant about no object distinct from particular numeral things except only names and characters which originally came to be considered on no other account but their being signs or capable to represent aptly whatever particular things men had need to compute whence it follows that to study them for their own sake would be just as wise and to as good purpose as if a man neglecting the true use or original intention and subserviency of language should spend his time in impertinent criticisms upon words or reasonings and controversies purely verbal 123 from numbers we proceed to speak of extension which considered as relative is the object of geometry the infinite divisibility of finite extension though it is not expressly laid down either as an axiom or theorem in the elements of that science yet is throughout the same everywhere supposed and thought to have so inseparable and essential a connection with the principles and demonstrations in geometry that mathematicians never admit it into doubt or make the least question of it and as this notion is the source from whence do spring all those amusing geometrical paradoxes which have such a direct repugnancy to the plain common sense of mankind and are admitted with so much reluctance into a mind not yet debauched by learning so it is the principal occasion of all that nice and extreme subtlety which renders the study of mathematics so difficult and tedious hence if we can make it appear that no finite extension contains innumerable parts or is infinitely divisible it follows that we shall at once clear the science of geometry from a great number of difficulties and contradictions which have ever been esteemed a reproach to human reason and withal make the attainment thereof a business of much less time and pains than it hitherto has been 124 every particular finite extension which may possibly be the object of our thought is an idea existing only in the mind and consequently each part thereof must be perceived if therefore i cannot perceive innumerable parts in any finite extension that i consider it is certain they are not contained in it but it is evident that i cannot distinguish innumerable parts in any particular line surface or solid which i either perceive by sense or figure to myself in my mind wherefore i conclude they are not contained in it nothing can be plainer to me than that the extensions i have in view are no other than my own ideas and it is no less plain that i cannot resolve any one of my ideas into an infinite number of other ideas that is that they are not infinitely divisible if by finite extension be meant something distinct from a finite idea i declare i do not know what that is and so cannot affirm or deny anything of it but if the terms extension parts etc are taken in any sense conceivable that is for ideas then to say a finite quantity or extension consists of parts infinite in number is so manifest a contradiction that every one at first sight acknowledges it to be so and it is impossible it should ever gain the assent of any reasonable creature who is not brought to it by gentle and slow degrees as a converted gentile to the belief of transubstantiation ancient and rooted prejudices do often pass into principles and those propositions which once obtain the force and credit of a principle are not only themselves but likewise whatever is deducible from them thought privileged from all examination and there is no absurdity so gross which by this means the mind of man may not be prepared to swallow 125 
he whose understanding is possessed with the doctrine of abstract general ideas may be persuaded that whatever be thought of the ideas of sense extension in abstract is infinitely divisible and one who thinks the objects of sense exist without the mind will perhaps in virtue thereof be brought to admit that a line but an inch long may contain innumerable parts really existing though too small to be discerned these errors are grafted as well in the minds of geometricians as of other men and have a like influence on their reasonings and it were no difficult thing to show how the arguments from geometry made use of to support the infinite divisibility of extension are bottomed on them at present we shall only observe in general whence it is the mathematicians are all so fond and tenacious of that doctrine 126 it has been observed in another place that the theorems and demonstrations in geometry are conversant about universal ideas section 15 introduction where it is explained in what sense this ought to be understood to wit the particular lines and figures included in the diagram are supposed to stand for innumerable others of different sizes or in other words the geometer considers them abstracting from their magnitude which does not imply that he forms an abstract idea but only that he cares not what the particular magnitude is whether great or small but looks on that as a thing different to the demonstration hence it follows that a line in the scheme but an inch long must be spoken of as though it contained ten thousand parts since it is regarded not in itself but as it is universal and it is universal only in its signification whereby it represents innumerable lines greater than itself in which may be distinguished ten thousand parts or more though there may not be above an inch in it after this manner the properties of the line signified are by a very usual figure transferred to the sign and thence through mistake thought to appertain to it considered in its own nature one hundred and twenty seven because there is no number of parts so great but it is possible there may be a line containing more the inch line is said to contain parts more than any assignable number which is true not of the inch taken absolutely but only for the things signified by it but men not retaining that distinction in their thoughts slide into a belief that the small particular line described on paper contains in itself parts innumerable there is no such thing as the ten thousandth part of an inch but there is of a mile or diameter of the earth which may be signified by that inch when therefore i delineate a triangle on paper and take one side not above an inch for example in length to be the radius this i consider as divided into ten thousand or a hundred thousand parts or more for though the ten thousandth part of that line considered in itself is nothing at all and consequently may be neglected without an error or inconveniency yet these described lines being only marks standing for greater quantities whereof it may be the ten thousandth part is very considerable it follows that to prevent notable errors in practice the radius must be taken of ten thousand parts or more a hundred and twenty eight lines which are infinitely divisible from what has been said the reason is plain why to the end any theorem become universal in its use it is necessary we speak of the lines described on paper as though they contained parts which really they do not in doing of which if we examine the matter thoroughly we shall perhaps discover that we cannot conceive an inch itself as consisting of or being divisible into a thousand parts but only some other line which is far greater than an inch and represented by it and that when we say a line is infinitely divisible we must mean a line which is infinitely great what we have here observed seems to be the chief cause why to suppose the infinite divisibility of finite extension has been thought necessary in geometry 129 
the several absurdities and contradictions which flowed from this false principle might one would think have been esteemed so many demonstrations against it but by i know not what logic it is held that proofs a posteriori are not to be admitted against propositions relating to infinity as though it were not impossible even for an infinite mind to reconcile contradictions or as if anything absurd and repugnant could have a necessary connection with truth or flow from it but whoever considers the weakness of this pretence will think it was contrived on purpose to humour the laziness of the mind which had rather acquiesce in an indolent scepticism than be at the pains to go through with a severe examination of those principles it has ever embraced for true one hundred and thirty of late the speculations about infinities have run so high and grown to such strange notions as have occasioned no small scruples and disputes among the geometers of the present age some there are of great note who not content with holding that finite lines may be divided into an infinite number of parts do yet farther maintain that each of those infinitesimals is itself subdivisible into an infinity of other parts or infinitesimals of a second order and so on ad infinitum these i say assert there are infinitesimals of infinitesimals of infinitesimals etc without ever coming to an end so that according to them an inch does not barely contain an infinite number of parts but an infinity of an infinity of an infinity ad infinitum of parts others there be who hold all orders of infinitesimals below the first to be nothing at all thinking it with good reason absurd to imagine there is any positive quantity or part of extension which though multiplied infinitely can never equal the smallest given extension and yet on the other hand it seems no less absurd to think the square cube or other power of a positive real root should itself be nothing at all which they who hold infinitesimals of the first order denying all of the subsequent orders are obliged to maintain end of section six